Well, as you guys are grabbing a seat, you're welcome to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We're going to be continuing in on our series of the book of Romans. As you're turning there, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Trey Corey. I'm executive pastor here at Grace Bible, and it's my joy and privilege to get to fill in for Matt this morning as he's out. As you guys are turning to Romans chapter 7, it was this week that I was reminded of my first ever do-it-yourself project. It was probably about 15, 20 years ago that we moved into Bryan, coming back off the mission field, and we were before kids, and we had bought a kind of an older house in Bryan that we wanted to kind of do some work on, and so we had outsourced a few key projects that were clearly kind of past our skill level, but on this fateful Saturday, we had targeted and planned to redo the tile work in the bathtub area of our master bedroom, or bathroom. One of the things that you have to realize about me as we kind of approached this is I grew up in a home where there was no project, no matter how small or big, that we didn't feel was perfect for outsourcing to someone else. And so you have to understand my dad and kind of the home I grew up in was both unskilled and a wee bit combustible. And so it was quite expensive of a strategy, but it led to uh, the maintaining of healthy relationships in our home and the maintaining and preventing of further damage in our home for him to make the decision to outsource everything. So it was in that kind of home that I grew up in. And so as we came to this fateful Saturday, you can recognize that I was completely ill-equipped for the moment at hand. I hadn't been raised in any kind of on-the-job training of how to do anything. And so what had raised me, what had trained me was the hours of YouTube videos that I watched before this Saturday. And no matter the number of YouTube videos I watched, the number of hours that I took in terms of education, it didn't also prevent the fact that I went to Lowe's back and forth way too many times on that Saturday. Somewhere along that afternoon, I finally had begun to pick up some progress and begin to kind of get some traction on the project and kind of had things outlined. I had some tiles going up and being held in position, and it, was come, it had come time for me to mix the mortar and apply the mortar around the tiles. Now, I realized at that moment in time, I didn't have a mortar mixer, okay? I hadn't purchased that. I wasn't going to purchase it because I had also decided on that Saturday I was never going to do this kind of project ever again in my life, Okay? And so I did what any self-respecting man would do at that moment in time. I waited for my wife to have left the house, and I strolled into the kitchen, and I got a hand mixer (laughs) with the biggest beaters I could find, and I got after it. And I'm about three to five minutes in, and I'm mixing some mortar, all right? It's going pretty well, but then I begin to smell something that's not right. And then I begin to see some smoke beginning to emit from the mixer, And I realize I'm in quite a bit of trouble at this point in time. I can replace the beaters, but I'm not going to be able to replace the mixer. Now, this wasn't one of those KitchenAid mixers, like really heavy-duty countertop kind of stuff. This is just one of those hand mixers that was portable, could get where I needed to get. And so I kind of decided I was going to ride this mixer out as far as it could go. And and by the time it finally died on me, heating in my hand, still haven't mixed the mortar. So I sheepishly have to walk over to my neighbor. I'm like, hey, can I borrow a mortar mixer, which... Would have been great about 20 minutes prior. Uh, and so at this point in time, I finally get the mortar mixer uh, going. I finally get it right. Everything's fine. And I was able to replace the mixer before my wife got back home as the project was f- culminized, which is totally fine. That's not the point of the story. So why do I tell you that story as we jump into Romans chapter 7? And Well, two reasons. One, if you have some kind of do-it-yourself project, I'm not available this afternoon, all right? Cowboys are playing, and I'm not your man, all right? Number two, uh, the best things when they're taken out of context can be ruined. And what we're going to see this morning is not just true of mixers, but it's also true of something known as the law. And what Paul is going to do in Romans chapter 7 is he's going to talk all about the law. 
And what he's going to tell us is that the Old Testament law with the Ten Commandments and all the stipulations and regulations, that when it is taken out of context, it can be ruined and then we can be ruined. And what we're going to find in Romans chapter 7 is going to be an explanation off of what he told us in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, which Matt's already covered. If you're there, flip back to Romans chapter 6, because in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, Paul dropped a little bomb. And he's going to come back and clean things up in Romans chapter 7. But notice what he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. He says this, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you're under grace. And then he keeps on going and trucking through his explanation in Romans chapter 6. But he's going to come back in Romans chapter 7 to talk about what he just dropped here in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Why? Because in Romans chapter 7, verse 1, you're going to see, he's going to say, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. He's addressing those that had a background in Judaism, that had a background in the law. And, and he's recognizing that what he said in chapter 6, verse 14, was not just confusing for them, but was revolutionary for them. That he couldn't just drop it and keep moving on, but he's going to have to unpack and explain it because the law, for those that knew the law, for those that came up through Judaism, the law was absolutely not just necessary, but it was central. The law was, in a sense, what became a constitution for them and helped form them as a nation as they came out of Egyptian slavery. The Ten Commandments were almost in kind, kind of like our Declaration of Independence. The law and every element of it, in a sense, kind of helped frame their life in the Old Testament and their spiritual life. The law taught them that God was holy. The law taught them that they were sinful. The law taught them how they could serve God, how they could have forgiveness of sins. The law taught them, uh, in a sense, how to even worship God. The law was the mechanism by which they actually could experience and access the blessings of the covenants that God had extended them through Abraham, Moses, David, and eventually even in the New Covenant. The law was central to their experience in their life in the Old Testament. In fact, the law framed their moral life, their religious life, and even their civil life. The law was foundational to how they walked with God throughout the Old Testament. And so for Paul to come along here in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, and say that you're not under the law, but you're under grace, would have been not just confusing to them, but would have been revolutionary. And so Paul is going to take all of chapter 7 to explain what he meant by that one verse in chapter 6, verse 14. Paul is going to answer two basic questions for us in our passage as we jump in in chapter 7. And the two questions are these. How exactly were we freed from the law? And secondly, why is it good that we've been freed from the law? For those that knew the law, that to think that they had been freed from the law was not just confusing, but it was revolutionary. And so Paul is going to hit time out, kind of pause and slow down and explain exactly how they had been freed from the law and why it was good that they were freed from the law. That's where Paul is going to take us in the first half of chapter 7 that will set up where Matt will pick us up next week at the back half of chapter 7. First question he's going to hit in the first four verses of chapter 7 is how have we been freed from the law? How exactly did that happen? Notice what he says in verses 1 to 4. We'll pick it up in the very beginning of chapter 7. He says this, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's freed from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. And then he brings it home in verse 4, and he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, 
so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. In Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 4, he's answering the question, how exactly have we been freed from the law? And his answer is simple. It's basically built off the premise of law, and he's saying, basically, take marriage for an example. When a husband and, and wife are bound together in matrimony, as they're wedded together, they become bound to one another. And that commitment, that jurisdiction, that bounding of law is not broken until one dies. And so for a, uh, in the case of a spouse who dies, then that other spouse that's remaining is left and freed to marry. Now, chapter 7, verses 1 to 4 is not a treatise on marriage and all the uh, comments and all the commentaries about marriage and divorce. He's just using marriage as a basic vanilla <laughs> Uh, example real quickly here without any complexities or nuances to talk about uh, how law works. That essentially once we're bound to one another, that the only way that we can often be unbound from law is if a death happens. So he gives the example in verse two, if a spouse dies and the other spouse that's remaining is freed. But in verse three he says, but if the spouse has not died, but that spouse is joined to another, then there's a case of adultery. In verse four, he brings it home and he says, well, exactly how then have we been freed from the law? And he's going to say that essentially that we have died and our death with Christ is what frees us from the law. Notice verse four again. He says, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another to him who is raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. In Romans chapter 10, verse four, Paul will say that Christ is the end of the law. That the death of Christ and his shed blood on the cross is going to bring about an end of the actual law. And what he's going to say here in Romans 7 is that not just that Christ's death brought an end to the law, but our union with Christ in his death, which he talks about in earlier in Romans 6, is what allows the law to no longer have jurisdiction or claim on us. Christ puts aside the law, he fulfills the law, and therefore its jurisdiction over us is no longer valid. So how are we freed from the law? This point is simple. Christ's death brings about an end of the law, and Christ's death and our belief and our faith in Christ unites us so that we've died as well in his death. And our death alongside of his death brings about a freedom from the law that we're no longer bound to it. For a Jew who knew the law, this idea is revolutionary. <laughs> to imagine being freed from the law from his jurisdiction that it no longer has claim over me would have been utterly revolutionary for them. For those of us that have kind of been trucking along as the church and, and aren't as accustomed to the Old Testament, this isn't such a novel concept. But we're going to kind of talk about how it applies to us and how law plays out even in our lives as we kind of wrap up this morning. But that, the idea is simple here. How are we freed from law as those who are in Jesus Christ? Well, it's his death and our union in his death that allows us to be freed from the law so that it no longer, the Old Testament law no longer has jurisdiction or claim over our life. So the question becomes, well, then why? <laughs> why is that good? If that's how it's happened, why is that necessary? Why is it good? Why is the change of relationship that we have with Jesus Christ led not just to a freedom from the law, but something good being about the fact that we've been freed from the law? When I first got married, we moved to Dallas. And as we moved to Dallas, we were, uh, jumped into an apartment complex that if you would sign a, a year-long lease or a two-year-long lease, uh, you get a, a kind of relief off of the first month rent, but they'd also provide a free gift. And as we were kind of making decisions, one of the free gifts they offered at the time was a black leather recliner chair, which I clearly, quickly said, that's what we've got to have. And so at that point in time, in the midst of engagement and kind of planning out kind of where we were going to live post-marriage, my wife kind of just said, sure, that sounds great, that's fine. Uh, many of you that are marriage veterans know where the story's going. 
Uh, and so we got the black leather recliner. And as we jumped in, as we moved into our apartment and didn't have a lot of furniture, and we're trying to piece it together, that black leather recliner was like central in the living room in front of the TV. It brought great joy to me. The headrest was like a massive pillow. By the time you reclined, it was like a body hug from a pillow. Like, and in front of the TV, watching sports, like everything was good, all right? And then as we bought furniture, at some point in time, I began to realize that that chair wasn't as good to my wife as it was to me. Uh, and it was banished from the living room, like, into the secondary room that we had kind of made into an office. That was fine and all until that office had to become a guest room, and then there was no room for the chair. And the thing that had brought life to me, what I was now realizing, was bringing death to my marriage, okay? And so forever, from that point forward, eventually we got that chair out of there, and the thing that I loved, the thing that had been so good, I began to realize was no longer good. And what Paul is going to say is the law that had once been good was like that black leather chair recliner, that a change of relationship had taken what was good and it was no longer good anymore. And what he's going to say in chapter 7, verses 5 and on is he's going to explain why the law that was once good, once, once righteous, once perfect, was no longer fruitful and good for us anymore because of a change of relationship. Verses 5 to 6 will kind of give you a, a bit of a summary of his argument. Notice what he says in verses 5 to 6. He goes on moving from how we've been freed from it to why we've been freed from it. And he says this in verses 5 and 6. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passage which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we might serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What Paul does here in verses 5 to 6 is a bit of a summary of the rest of the chapter. And what he's going to do is he's going to kind of contrast two ways of living, an old way and a new way, an Old Testament way and a New Testament way, a way that is marked by the law and a way that is marked by the Spirit. Chapter 7 is going to unpack law by the, or life by the law, and chapter 8 is going to mark life by the Spirit. And so verses 5 to 6 are a bit of a summary intro of this discussion and where he's heading. And what he's going to show us and what he's going to feature in on is what this old life is and, and how it doesn't work any longer. And particularly what he's going to show us about the law and what it does to us is that the law particularly arouses sin and it produces death. That the law's impact in us, not just that we've been freed from it, but if we continue to live with it, it's going to arouse sin and it's actually going to lead to death. Notice what he says in verse 7. He continues on. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law of sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. The first thing the law does for us in the midst of the Old Testament, or even as we think about it today, is that it identifies and it names sin. Paul's saying, basically, I wouldn't have known what coveting was if the law had said, don't do it. The law, in a sense, identifies sin in our lives. The law is like an MRI machine that as it scans us, it shows us that we have cancer, a cancer known as sin. But that MRI machine can't fix the problem. It just reveals the problem and its extent in our lives. And so Paul is highlighting that it's not just that the law reveals sin, but the law goes even further and it arouses sin in us. Notice what he says in verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Verse 8 is massively significant for us if we grasp it. What he's saying is that it's not just that the law 
actually reveals sin and, and is like a ruler that measures out how far we fall. But what he's saying is even further than that is that the law does something to us that triggers something in us that makes sin even more likely. Notice what he says, he goes, I wouldn't have known what coveting was unless the law said don't covet. But when the law says don't covet, then all of a sudden I want to covet in every way imaginable. That the law doesn't just identify sin, but it arouses sin in us. And all of a sudden we desire to do what we even never thought about doing beforehand. Story's kind of famous that's told of a hotel that's in Galveston that was built right across or on a pier looking out on water. And so at some point, management of the hotel decided that it's probably likely that there are going to be some bright-eyed, smart guests that are going to think, how great would it be to fish from our balcony into the gulf? And so they decided, let's do this. Let's put up signs that say, no fishing. Because what they were afraid of is that by fishing, a lure would come and would end up crashing onto the windows of the first floor dining room that looked out on the water. How startling and how concerning would it be to have lures hitting, glass breaking, it's expensive, it's startling, it's stressful. And so they thought, let's just put up signs that say no fishing. What do you think happened? Everyone decided to start fishing, right? And so people are fishing left and right, and so they, don't, they have no idea how to, get, how to get a rain on this, and so they ended up doing something kind of creative. They said, let's take the signs down. The moment the signs came down, then all of a sudden fishing began to abate, and a couple months later, then there was no fishing going on whatsoever. Why? Because the moment you tell me don't do something, what happens in me? Game on, right? Let's go, all right? I still remember being in college and traveling Europe with some buddies, and we're in Italy, and we're hitting museums, and the museums say don't touch, no pictures. Game on, right? We're riding those statues like they're animals, right? And we're taking crazy pictures, right? <laughs> Never thought of it until you told me not to do it. Now it's game on, all right? That's what the law does to our sin nature, but because of the sin nature that we're going to look at a lot more specifically next week as we jump into the latter half of chapter 7, that when the law comes and says don't do something, our sin nature says, now I really want to do it. I didn't even think about it before. You told me not to, but now you've told me not to. Now I want to do it in every way imaginable. Verse 8, sin taking opportunity um, aroused in us a desire for sin. And then verses 9 to 11, we see the inevitable result of this. Verse 9 says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, then sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. The irony is that the law wanted to protect and provide and provide something good and provide life, but inevitably it ended up producing death. The law, as noble as its intentions were, the result was death. Why? Because there's something in us that our response to the law always leads to an arousing of sin and death itself. So the inevitable question arises, then, if that's what the law does to us, then Paul is going to go ahead and jump out in front of the objector because he knows what the objector is, objector is going to ask, and he's going to answer the question, then, is the law at fault? Is the law good? If this is what the law does to us, then maybe the law is bad. And by extension, maybe the lawgiver is bad. In a book that's all about the righteousness of God, then the question becomes, is the lawgiver righteous? And what Paul is going to say is the issue is not with the law, the issue is with us. Notice how he says it, verse 7 again, if you flip back up. Chapter 7, verse 7, notice where he begins. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Is the law sinful? Is the law evil? Is the law bad? Absolutely not. He goes on further and he says it this way in verse 12 when he says, So then, 
The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the question is, is the law good? His answer is yes, the law is good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. And so why is it good that the law has been moved away? Because we don't respond well to law. We respond poorly to law. Law does something in us and then eventually something to us that leads to arousing of sin and death. And so the law is not good. I'm sorry, the law is good, but the problem is us. In fact, as we kind of look at this, Paul is going to foreshadow where he's going to go next. He's going to show us there is a better way. Let me take you back to verses 5 and 6 real quick where he began in this section. Notice the summary again because he's going to foreshadow where he's going to go. Verse 5, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. This is the old way. But verse 6, he's going to preview a better way, a newer way when he says this. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we are bound, so that we could serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Paul is going to contrast an old way and a new way here. In an old way that is marked by the law and a new way that is marked and driven by the spirit. An old way that is marked by the letter or an external standard and a new way that is marked by something that's internal on the heart. In fact, if you look at our Old Testament, our Old Testament knew this is where this was going to go eventually. The Old Testament had the great decree, the great laying out of the law and all the regulations that even in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see the problem, the deficiency of the law. Find this, it says, oh, that they had, a, had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them. The problem with the law was not a lack of clarity. The problem with the law was that it didn't deal with and fix the primary problem that you and I have, which is a heart that's resistant to God. The law in its letter or in its code on tablets written externally was external to us and didn't touch the very issue that we had within our very heart itself. So it ended up being an MRI machine that could kind of scan and reveal the problem, but couldn't address and fix the problem. In fact, in the midst of our experience with it, it just aroused sin all the more and made us all the more want to do what it told us not to do. And so Paul is beginning to highlight an old way and a new way. And he's going to say that that new way isn't just about a letter, but it's something that's going to be internalized. Because notice what we find in this new covenant passage in Ezekiel chapter 36. It says this, that I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. While the nation of Israel is in discipline in time out for not obeying the law, God comes to them through the prophet and he tells them that a day is going to come in the future when I'm going to do something brand new in you. Not like the old days, but in new days to come, I'm going to do something totally new. I'm going to do something specifically to your heart in such a way that I'm going to remove the heart of stone that's resistant to me, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Not a heart of sin nature, but a heart that's soft to me. In fact, I'm going to give you a new heart when I put my spirit within you. What Ezekiel chapter 36 is foretelling is a day that's going to come that is inaugurated within the church age that we're going to look at specifically in chapter 8. When the Spirit of God comes and indwells in us, what does he do differently in us that the Old Testament Jew and the nation of Israel didn't have? The law was an external set of regulations and codes that revealed to them in clarity what God wanted. 
but they were set up to fail because they didn't have a heart that could actually obey it. They didn't have a heart that desired to obey it. And they didn't have a set of resources internally through the spirit to actually fulfill and do what it was asking them to do. The deficiency of the law of the Old Testament is that it didn't give them the heart to obey and it didn't give them the ability or the resources to obey. Both of which are gonna happen with the spirit of God that we're gonna see in Romans chapter eight. So don't miss chapter eight. So what do you and I do with this? And where do you and I go with this? And how do we go forward? Because we aren't those who he's addressing in the very beginning of chapter seven, verse one, who know the law. Chapter six, verse 14, wasn't a mic drop, bomb dropping moment for us. We just kept trucking along probably as we were reading through chapter six. So what does this do for us? Well, for you and I, we aren't as familiar with the Old Testament Mosaic law, but I would submit to you that many of us are familiar with operating by a set of external standards operating by a set of, set of lists that determine how we should live or what we should do. Uh, I've mentioned this before, being in here uh, on a message about rest, but I'm an Enneagram 3, which means I'm driven by list. I love to do, I love to accomplish, I love to feel like I finished off my list, all right? And so in a sense, many of us are still driven at times by external standards or external guidelines that seem like they have reign over us to determine what we should or shouldn't do. And so for you and I, when we begin to realize that we're no longer driven by law or external standards, it leads to a series of shifts that have to occur in our life. So I wanna give you guys three different shifts that I think are absolutely significant as we look at Romans chapter seven that need to be true for you and I. If we've been freed from the law and if, we, if being freed from the law is good, then three shifts are appropriate for us as we think about walking with Jesus Christ, as we think about trying to fulfill uh, a righteousness that's being uh, practically lived out in our lives as we think about obedience, faith, and works. Three shifts. The first is this, that you and I need to lean into uh, a shift of devotion over duty. As you think about your relationship with Jesus Christ, as you think about the calls to obey God and to walk with God, I want to ask you, how driven are you primarily out of duty or how primarily driven are you out of devotion? What drives you to obey the calls of the New Testament on your life? Devotion or duty? Let me give you an analogy. Imagine the husband who gets up every morning and gets ready in front of the mirror, probably doesn't take a ton of time, uh, but he's got a little, little set, of, a little tab of some things that he's got to do in his life. Imagine if it was walk with Jesus and it's some great things, but then imagine if it was on there, it said, be faithful to your wife. How do you think that's going to play out? I don't think it's gonna play out very well, right? As if he needs some kind of external reminder or some checklist to, to kind of cross off each day in order to be faithful to his wife. If faithfulness to his wife in marriage is driven out of duty and not out of devotion, we have a problem, right? It doesn't communicate as well. It shows the nature of the relationship. Something is off, something is wrong. I think for many of us though, as we think about our own spiritual lives, there's a high level of duty that's involved, and sometimes there's a low level of devotion that's involved. And here's the reality, here's the thing. Duty only takes you so far. Duty only takes you so far in walking with Jesus Christ and honoring Jesus Christ. Duty always leads us eventually falling short, and duty always leads us eventually exhausted. Because it's not corresponding to our affections, it's not corresponding to what we love. Devotion will always take us further than duty ever will. 
Devotions takes us further, and devotion takes us to a further place without any exhaustion because it's an overflow of our heart, and it's what we desire. And part of what Paul is trying to highlight is that the external law that we've been freed from is only an external set of lists. And what God has now done through his spirit that indwells us if we know Jesus Christ is he's beginning to change our very heart and our very passion so that we desire to do what he's called us to do. I've told this story before, but I am not the healthiest eater, okay? Uh, For whatever reason, I thought that might lead to problems as I parented my children, but they are way healthier eaters. They eat way more colors on the plate than I do. I just don't have a desire for vegetables, okay? For whatever reason, artichokes slipped in. I have no idea why that got through the filter. I like artichokes, and I can choke down a good salad if there's enough creamy dressing on it, all right? But other than salad and an occasional artichoke, I struggle, okay? I don't have taste buds for vegetables. I have taste buds for a lot of other things, like bluebell, okay? The great encouragement of the spiritual life is that ultimately God is changing our taste buds so that we actually end up desiring the very thing he's called us to. If we lean into a relationship of devotion so that he begins to become that which we desire most. Duty only takes you so far. Devotion always takes you further with much greater satisfaction. And so lean into devotion, spending time with Jesus, because that's what it's all about. In the midst of that affection, in the midst of that relationship, you will always go further than duty will ever take you. Second of all is this, lean into grace over grades. Lean into grace over grades. What do I mean by that? As you think about your own spiritual maturity or as you think about other spiritual maturity, Do you have a tendency to evaluate that out of grace or out of a sense of ranking and grade system? All of life is driven by a grade system. Uh, We have an eighth grader and we have a fifth grader at this point in time. All of academics is a grade system. Uh, At this point in time, my fifth grade boy is about six inches from my head height, okay? Uh, And he is looking forward to the day that he is taller than me and will have a height higher than mine. For you guys that are a little further than me in parenting, I don't know how parenting goes when you're looking up at your child and lecturing them, but that day is coming for me, all right? And ultimately for him, he is driven, whether he would articulate it this way or not, but he is driven to reach an external set of benchmarks because he wants to be the alpha male in the home, okay? What he doesn't realize is that day is a lot further off from today than he thinks it is. And some of you that are a little further than are a little further ahead than me would also tell me that that day is probably coming quicker than I may think it is, right? And so there's been a few times that we've gone to the gym and he's wanted to lift weights, and I've been absolutely startled that his weight number that he's lifting is way closer to mine than I thought it should be. But he's driven by these external standards that he wants to reach because to them they communicate something about our relationship. And it makes me cry, all right? But what is true academically, what's true in our home in terms of our own relationship and what he thinks is his status with me is not at all true with how Jesus works with our relationship with him. Our relationship with him is not determined and driven by a set of external benchmarks or accomplishments or tasks that we arrive to. Our maturity is not on some kind of Richter scale of holiness that we can attend a nine and eight or a seven, right? It doesn't mean that we're not evaluated by the Lord and by the spirit that brings about conviction. But our maturity is not marked by some kind of standard that's external or some kind of grading system. But for so many of us, as we think about our own lives, as we think about um, 
how we walk with Jesus and what's driven by whether we feel like we're doing well or not, it's often an external set of standards of benchmarks by which we're measuring ourselves up against or someone else up against. What's the problem with lists? If you keep them, what does it lead to and result in, in your heart? Pride. If you don't keep them, what ends up resulting in your heart? Shame. So in the midst of walking with Jesus, we end up often swinging between two different extremes of either pride or shame. And ultimately what I think Paul is trying to help us realize is there is a better way forward that doesn't swing us so ex- extremely between the poles of pride and shame in the midst of trying to walk with Jesus Christ. There's a better way forward, a way that's marked by grace and not by some kind of ranking externally as we look at our lives and then we look at how we're doing. Grace is what is driven by how we've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that he did something for us that we could never do for ourselves, that he died on a cross to forgive our sins so that we enter into this relationship, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his finished work, death on a cross, resurrection, showing he had power over death and sin. And so we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven on the basis of faith and belief in what he did. But then Paul in the book of Galatians will say, well, if we began that way, then why do we begin to think that works are what drives us and determines how we're doing necessarily as we go forward that is still driven by grace as we go forward? As you think about your relationship with Jesus Christ, how much are you driven by grace and a safety in that relationship? Or how much are you driven by an external set of grading or ranking that you've created or that someone else has given you that makes you feel like whether you're doing well or not? When we feel like we're doing well based on that external standard, then we often find pride. When we don't feel like we're doing well, then we often find shame. And we swing between those poles all too often. Last idea as the band comes up and we get a chance to kind of respond in worship. The last shift I want to give you, the last shift I want to suggest to you is that we begin to lean into progression over perfection. That if walking with Jesus Christ began out of grace and if it continues out of grace, then the reality is we're going to continue to need to experience grace because we are never going to be perfect this side of heaven. It's fascinating to me as I have the chance to talk with and listen to older saints in the Lord, how much more attuned to their sin they are in their latter years than they were in their younger years. It doesn't get easier, it gets harder, which is why grace is needed as we begin and grace is always needed as we continue to walk with Jesus Christ because the goal is not perfection, the goal is progression. For many of us that are parenting, we all know this. We all know our kids are going to fail. We all know our kids are going to fall short. And the opportunity we have as parents is not to come punitively and crush them, but to continue to affirm the safety of the relationship they have with us and to provide sometimes consequences that are not necessarily punitive alone, but are often redemptive to get them back on track to becoming what God's entire or desired and intended them to be. Walking with Jesus Christ is not about perfection. It's about progression, trending in the right direction, knowing there are going to be good days and bad days, which is why grace continues to sustain it, not saying that sin can be condoned, but saying that in the midst of our failures, it doesn't break the relationship we have with the Lord. It doesn't change his love or his favor for us at all. That's already been established. And so there's grace in the midst of a progression that we're trying to make that is often far more messy than any of us would ever want to admit. 
But when we begin to walk, not by law, but by grace, when we begin to walk by the Spirit, in which the Spirit begins to bring about a transformation internally, it doesn't mean that it gets easy and that it's effortless. It means that in the midst of the challenge of walking with Jesus Christ, it's going to be some great days and some hard days. It's going to be a messy experience, and there's room for that, and it's okay. There's no external set of standards, external set of accomplishments to determine whether God loves you or not. That was settled once and for all on the cross when he showed us that he would pay the ultimate cost for a relationship with us. And that relationship was secured not on the basis of what we did, but on what we believed that he did. And having entered into that relationship with him that began out of grace, it continues out of grace, not driven and marked and graded by some external set of standards as if that's what defines us and as if that's what drives us. What drives our relationship with him, what drives us forward in sanctification is a leaning toward devotion over duty, a leaning toward grace over an external grading system, and a lean toward progression over perfection. And in that, we begin to find freedom to take risk, freedom to walk with him, freedom to fail, freedom to try and to get back up again, and freedom to continue to walk with him for a lifetime. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, it is often easier to lay out a list of what it looks like to do and to accomplish things for you. And Lord, I pray in the midst of thinking through this passage, Lord, that we're reminded that that external list, that external standard often creates pride if we can accomplish it or shame if we can't. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to find a better way forward, a way that's marked by freedom, a way that's marked by um, a heart that is responsive to you, that's not short-circuited out of duty alone, but finds a growing passion to know you and to walk with you. Lord, help us to find a better way forward. Lord, help us to begin to understand over the coming weeks as well what it looks like to walk by your spirit, what it looks like to find a set of resources that we can't find from self-sufficiency, that we can't grind it out, that we can't grit our teeth, clench our fists, and just try really hard. Lord, help us to find a new way forward, a way marked by grace, a way free from the law, a way free from external standards and external regulations but one that is dependent on you, that is an overflow of a walk with you in which you transform us over time, slowly but surely, for your glory and for our betterment. We ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit, we pray, amen.